welcome to episode 453 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Michael O'Malley. And Darren Hughes. In today's episode, we're going to be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1945 or 1947, if you want to go by the U.S. release, uh, Children of Paradise, which uh, I didn't I didn't put it in my notes. I'll just add it here was when they were advertising it in America, they said it was the French response to Gone with the Wind. So let that sit. That's a wild claim to make. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we have that in part two. Uh, And then part one, we got uh, just some some movies that we saw this week, uh, including one or two relatively new releases. Um, I'll kick us off. The first one is, I feel like one that's been pretty talked about on the, um, art house indie circuit and that is past lives uh this is the direct the feature directorial debut of celine song um who wrote and directed the film it's loosely based off of her own life um she is a she a, a playwright i think more well known in that space uh this is kind of her first for, foray into feature filmmaking um and it stars greta lee who is somebody i feel like if you see her, you'll know who I'm talking about, but you probably don't know her name. She's popped up in a number of like television shows. Um, I think most notably the show Russian Doll on Netflix. Um, but it's oh my that- gosh, that's where I'd seen. I've I've watched this trailer so many yeah. times. I'm like, why does she look so familiar? That's yeah, it. She's been in a lot of like she's been in a lot of different television. I think you know, in, in like I, I I'm I'm guessing, but like kind of like Parks and Rec. Brooklyn Nine-Nine like has popped up in stuff for a very long time, but this is kind of a feature role for her. Um, Yu Teo, who is the uh, Korean actor in this, and then John Magaro, who um, real talented actor. He's I think most people know him from recent Kelly Reichardt uh, movies, such as uh, First Cowl and Showing Up. Um, but the movie uh, follows Nora, who's the Greta Lee character, and Hae Sung, the Yu Yu Tao. Uh, character and it's broken up in the three parts uh, the first part they're um children they're they're living in south korea but nora um her parents um who are i think one is like a, i think they're both artists one's or his her dad is a filmmaker her mom's an artist are immigrating from south korea to uh canada and so you get a brief kind of moment of like their of Nora and Haesung's friendship, um, you know, they, they're kind of childhood sweethearts. Um, but then that part, that portion's pretty short because then she, she ends up moving away and then it picks up in the second part, which is, um, I think 12 years, 12 years later or seven, no, 12 years later. Um, and Nora is now a graduate student. She's living in New York city. Um, and just because of, you know, the timeline we're working with, uh, you know, Facebook is becoming more prevalent. And through that, she becomes reconnected with Sung, and they start kind of, uh, they reconnect and start talking again. Um, you know, it's been, it's been so long. They haven't talked since, um, they were children. Uh, he kind of, you know, pokes fun at her because her, her Korean has started to get kind of rusty. And she, she talks about how she only uses Korean while talking with him and her mother. Um, but then things transpire, they kind of drift apart. Uh, and the last half, the last part of the movie is, uh, 20 years, you know, 20 years from the beginning of the movie. And, uh, Nora is now married to the, to, oh, what's his name? Arthur, 
the John Magaro character and they've been married for about seven years. And uh, Sung is just recently out of a relationship and has come to visit New York City and, and was going to spend some time with Nora. Um, but yeah, this was one. It got pretty, I think it premiered at Sundance. It's been kind of buzzy since then. A lot of people have been uh, talking about it since it's uh, started to roll out into theaters. Um, for the most part, I liked it. I thought I, I, I enjoyed it. it. It definitely kind of ha- captures, it has a lot of that kind of romantic tension that you would want from this, of these kind of, you know, uh, the timing never lined up. Uh, but there's definitely still something there to people who are kind of just, you know, ships crossing in the night. Um, and I think, I, I think for the most part, the, the two main actors are, are, are pretty good. I think especially uh, Greta Lee's, you know, when she and Yu Tao are together, they're, they're pretty strong in, in kind of capturing that. Though I will have to say, though, in his very limited role, um, John Magaro's probably the best acting in this movie mm-hmm. he's very good um in his, as the as the husband of nora um the thing the couple things that i had there i saw i read a lot of uh reviews talking a little bit about just the um uh about about kind of the you know the language the the kind of culture clash of the movie um one of the the things that i saw was that uh a a number of people and i was talking to a friend actually recently and she mentioned that her friend who is korean really did not like this movie because she just couldn't get past how bad she felt like greta lee's korean accent was um but then i saw other people who were talking about it kind of going yeah it's like it's rusty it's not great uh or it's not it's not great but it's not refined like it 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 seems like somebody who has been living like in north america for a extended period of their life compared to living in korea um and so that would be that would be a natural thing. You would kind of assume that happens because she's probably not speaking Korean all the time. While you have somebody like uh, Hey Sung who is living in Korea, like that's his, you know, he's predominantly speaking that, and it seems much more like his 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 the way he's speaking is a little bit more refined in his language than than she would be. Um, so that's been kind of interesting to explore just on those levels. Um, the other thing, just on a on a more cinematic level. Um, I didn't think that this was, I wouldn't say in any way that this is necessarily poorly directed, but it's very, um, it's very safely directed. It's very, it feels very akin to like episodes of like succession or, you know, prestige television that is like very, that feels very neat and very clean and very, um, all the pieces are together but like with something like this where you kind of like want to to me where you want to like really capture that like that like there's just kind of the sexual this is this untapped sexual tension between these two characters Uh, i'm not saying like go full Wong Kar Wai but like i never like i think the actors do a good job of like kind of having this push and pull and like this um inability to kind of act on maybe the desires that they have, but I never really felt that communicated through the camera and, you know, or I just, you know, this is again, like this is Celine songs, her first movie. Um, and she doesn't, again, doesn't poorly direct it, but I'm just kind of like with something like this, where you really want to, especially in that last act, really want to like kind of tug at that, um, that just, that just untapped desire. I just never really felt like, 
I never really felt like there was a moment where like, you know, like these two might act on something, you know, it never really felt like the camera was really pulling uh, you know, was really pulling in that direction or kind of playing with our expert ex- expectations or our emotions. It just seemed very like clean. Um, but Darren, I know you saw this a while back. What, what, what were your thoughts on past lives? Yeah, it's been, um, I saw it in Berlin in February, so it's been a while, but, um, I remember, um, I remember reading about the like rave reviews out of Sundance and thinking, okay, this is, this movie is like made for me. Like I have a real weakness for certain kinds of melodramas. And I was waiting as I was watching it, I kept waiting for it to kind of open up and Mm -hmm. hit me and it never did. But again, like the response in Berlin was really strong too. And so it was one of those moments where I kind of walked out of the theater and kind of kept my opinion to myself, Mm -hmm. just thinking, okay, it doesn't work for me, but that's fine. Um, and then that night at dinner, two of my friends just started really like railing on the film. They they actively disliked it, mm-hmm. and it was good. I mean, it was helpful for me because I was like, okay, first of all, I'm not alone in this opinion. Yeah. But um, like the way you just described it as very um, adequately directed. Yeah. Um, I, 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 there's a critic, uh, Mike D'Angelo, who always like his his uh his first criteria for a documentary is like could i have just read a good newspaper like a good magazine <laughs> article yeah. instead and i feel like i could have read the script for past lives and would have been affected as much as i was by the film itself right yeah and it, i it, it felt very like uh by the numbers um well, I just yeah. I feel like you needed to take, you know, to your point, like, I think that there it does create, I you know, I, 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 I have a tough time because I can't speak to I think that pe- a lot of people are responding positively, like to the the kind of cultural angst, you know, mm-hmm. like she's first generation, she's, you know, she's kind of she even though hey Sung never really like, challenges her, you know, hard on like, her her americanness or whatever um there is this kind of like you know he she they talk a lot about how he's very traditionally korean especially korean male um and she feels very americanized and like that kind of that that's a lot of where um their tension kind of lies it's just how different they are in that respect um and so that's kind of tough i you know i i i i can't say that i can really tap into that but i did feel a distance to your point to the like melodrama and i'm kind of like mm-hmm. i feel like at the core that's what that's supposed to kind of be the universality that we're supposed to all kind of resonate on is like this this melodrama like this yearning um and yeah i think like, like like I said, the directing's not bad, but it never, it's it's trying to convey it, and maybe this is you know she's a playwright, like that's her that's her wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. she's trying to do it verbally, and I'm like, yeah, but this is a movie. We need to have it. We also need to have it, you know, spoken to us, you know, using the camera. And I just never really felt like it, and that kind of kept it. That's why it kind of had distance to me in terms of the melodrama. Yeah, and not to jump ahead or to like make her live up to an impossible standard mm-hmm. but when i was rewatching children of paradise this week mm-hmm. one of the things i loved about it was just how this the screenwriter like pushes every scene beyond when it could have ended so mm-hmm. every every conversation goes another two minutes longer than i expected it to mm-hmm. and there's constant invention and new ideas about love and um constant uh sort of um exploration of the of of these ideas about love Mm -hmm. and i remember watching 
past lives and thinking she was always ending the scene at like the easiest possible moment. None of the, um, none of the scenes were challenging. Yeah, it was, and it, not that it had to be messy, but it wasn't a very messy movie. You know, you have like this, like clearly those two at the very least wanted to make out, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) at the very least. And then you have the John Magaro character. And that's why I say he's really good because he plays what you need out of that role perfectly. Like he kind of is just like, I'm not going to get in your way, but also I am your husband um, and you're married. Uh, And he plays that well, but like, yeah, I just never felt like, I never felt like any, any of us were going to get in trouble, you know? No, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. So. um, And there has to be some kind of transgression in, in, in a melodrama. Yeah. You kind of have to feel like, even if it's again, like, you think back to you know the great ones it doesn't have to even be that they kiss or do anything else like they could just you know touch arms or like something very very inane but yeah. it feels like a transgression and like again like you you feel that expressed that like they've they've done something you know completely yeah. wrong and i just never really felt that from this the, the word that just came to mind is like i want i want the director of a melodrama to be perverse in some way yeah and not, not just sexually perverse, but just like a perversity of taste or something, mm-hmm. some kind of expressionism in, in the filmmaking language. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was just very um, television. Yeah. So um, it's, it's still playing around. I mean, I, I, I recommend people check oh, yeah. it out. I think, Absolutely. you know, like I say, I don't, I, I say all that in critiquing it, but I also, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of wanted a little bit more. But yeah. um, past lives, it's in it's in a lot of a lot of uh, art house theaters now. It's um it's distributed by A twenty four, so they're usually pretty good at getting that available once it hits streaming and in places like that. Um, but uh, Darren, I'm going to pass the mic over to you because you caught the <clears throat> most recent Christian Petzold movie. Yeah, which I also saw in Berlin, but it's opening um, Thursday or Friday in New mm-hmm. York, and will be opening wider beyond that. Um, it's being distributed by Janus Films and, and Sideshow Pictures, I think. So um, we can all expect to see it probably in a Criterion edition on the Criterion channel fairly soon. Um, yeah, so the latest film by Christian Petzold, who's one of my favorite filmmakers of the 21st century. Um, he's most known probably for Phoenix and the mm-hmm. other films that he made with Nina Haas um, over about a decade. Um, this one is... I think kind of a change of pace for him. It's um, there's no real crime element or anything in it. And instead of being kind of a one-on-one love story, it's, it's more of a, of a group film. Um, it was pretty obviously inspired by Eric Romare's La Collectionuse, which is, if you've seen it, that's the one where the, the two guys go off to the, the little house in the woods and they meet up a strange young girl um, mm. and sort of spend their summer flirting with her. Um, this one has the same basic premise. It starts with these two guys, I forget their names, Felix and Leon. Um, they're both in their twenties. They're both um, artists of some ambition. Thomas or Leon is, is working on his new novel. Felix is working on his um, photography portfolio. Felix is from a wealthier family and they have a, um, little cabin in the woods up on the northern coast by the baltic sea and so the two of them begin the film by by driving out to this um house in the woods to kind of get away and to work on their projects and when they get there they discover that um his mother has also rented out the house to um 
man, what's her name? Nadia, who's played by Paula Beer, who's the star of um, the last two Petzold films, uh, Transit mm. and Undina. And um, so there becomes sort of this uneasy relationship uh, between the two guys and this girl. And, um, and then there are other dramas going on. There's a, um, there's a, a forest fire raging nearby. Um, they discover right when they get there. And so it's kind of like the, um, the gun, you know, that shows up in act one, you know, the fire is going to play a more central role at some point in the film. Chekhov's forest fire. There you go. Chekhov. I remember who that was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, <clears throat> so just a really fun movie with great performances. I interviewed um, Petzold afterwards for uh, for Cinemascope and, and got to hear some of his story. And um, he was planning after Undina to do an adaptation of this really dark uh, Georges Simenon novel called The, the Snow Was Dirty, um, which I read uh, a couple weeks ago, and it's amazing. But, but it's really dark. It's about... Um, this young guy who is sort of losing his moral compass completely during the Nazi Nazi occupation of Brussels. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so when, um, when COVID kicked in, Petzold got sick and ended up spending a couple weeks in bed and started sort of watching Eric Romero films and went back and started watching like the great, what he was thinking of as kind of like the great summer movies. Mm-hmm. Like he really loved, um, was it the myth of the American sleepover and a couple others? He, he just started watching these movies and he just got it in his head that he wanted to make. He said when he was in film school, one of his professors told him that you should make the kinds of films that when you watch 30 years later, you will know what it was like <clears throat> at that time mm. to be young and to fall in love. Excuse me. And so I think he, he sort of, completely changed course and started writing this film mainly as an excuse to just kind of, um, he has kids in his twenties and he was watching them sort of struggle with the isolation of quarantine and just thinking Mm -hmm. about the difference between his youth in the seventies and eighties and nineties and his own children. And he just wanted to make this like fairly lighthearted summer movie about young love. Um, and also sort of the, the, a study of the young artist who is, um, you know, sort of limited in his experience and maturity and, um, you know, not the most evolved of young men um, as Petzold was at that age. Um, So anyway, it's just a really fun um, exploration of that stuff. And I just feel like uh, I could, I don't know if I could talk about this at length, but just like Petzold is just the most precisely calibrated filmmaker like i get joy from his films just in how good he is as a just as from shot to shot level i just feel like he's as close as we have right now and this this um comparison is is almost a cliche at this point but (coughs) he's just like the classic hollywood style filmmaker he just knows what he's yeah I'm I'm surprised he hasn't you know but i'm happy like i'm i'm glad he's kind of just you know, stayed over there. I'm surprised, like, you know, Hollywood, <laughs> not to like pull him into something, but like, I could see him coming over and maybe trying to do like a, like a English language drama or something like that. Oh, and he's sure. kind of just stayed over in Europe. And yeah, I agree. Like, it's just, it's just kind of a consistently strong, 
you know, just kind of a consistently strong filmmaker. He kind of reminds me, maybe you'll disagree. He reminds me, I think this one, this guy takes a lot more risks. So he's a little bit more like up and down than Petzl, but he reminds me a little bit of Steven Soderbergh in terms of just kind of like Mm -hmm. keeping in, in line with like the basics of the craft. Um, Soderbergh again, takes a lot more risk and is trying to like kind of play with technology and things like that. But at the same time, uh, Soderbergh also just has like the basics of entertaining you with visuals down and like can always do that. Um, what, what's Petzolt like just as a, as a person to talk to, he seems like he'd be kind of interesting to just pick his brain. Oh, I'd, I'd heard for you. This was my first time um, interviewing him and I'd heard for years that he's like the easiest, best interview in the game. And he, he really is just, I was disappointed. <coughs> he didn't do a whole lot of English language press when I was in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to do a zoom afterwards, which was disappointing at first, but we ended up talking for like 90 minutes. Um, and he's just delightful. He's going to be, I think he's going to be in New York this weekend and maybe LA too. And um, everybody who goes, will just have the time of their lives. He's, he's just a really fun fun guy and you know like i got him very easily distracted because something about this film reminded me of vincent minnelli Mm -hmm. and so i i was like i took the risk and asked him about it and we ended up talking about minnelli for like 15 minutes and he was told me a couple great stories and it turned out that um some came running which is my favorite minnelli film was Mm -hmm. the first film that he showed to the cast of a fire as they were, oh, nice. as they were planning. Um, yeah. So he's just a diehard cinephile and is happy to sit and talk about movies as long as you, awesome. you've got his attention. Great guy. Michael, did we talk about doing a Minnelli series? Was that, do we have that conversation or my envisioning it? That does not ring a bell to me, but we maybe that do- was with, maybe that was with Nadine. At some point I remember us talking about doing a Minnelli series. We should do it. I'd be for uh, it. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, uh, hopefully that'll that'll make its way to uh, you know wider than New York yeah. and LA pretty soon. Because yeah, and if you haven't seen Christian Petzl movies, you should go watch Christian Petzl movies. A lot of them are generally on Criterion Channel. Um, but yeah, I think the probably the easiest one that like easiest accessible one, and that at least that I mean that's the one that I saw first was Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely go back. Criterion has a collection on the Criterion channel of his of his of his first few, few films, um, but then his, a lot of his recent stuff, um, like you know, you mentioned Undina, but also uh, Transit, like those are all yeah. great. So uh, Transit, yeah, yeah, so good, great stuff. Um, but yeah, very cool. Um, all right, Michael, you're gonna take us home. I'm taking it all home with a uh, movie that's not recent at all. Uh, so today. I watched the 1991 documentary Madonna colon Truth or Dare, which is the like, uh, like kind of hybrid documentary um, of Madonna's uh, Blonde Ambitions tour, which is when she was touring. It was right. She was like dating Warren Beatty at the time. So it was right around when she did like Dick Tracy. um, And uh, it was also touring the um, like a prayer uh, album mm-hmm. is that the album it definitely has like a prayer on it um i can envision the album in my mind like the cover but regardless so this is like peak madonna right um but the kind of interesting uh conceit which is less interesting in retrospect because this has become for some types of films like the a kind of genre unto itself is like half of the movie is concert footage and it's like you know 
Blonde Ambition is like just, you know, a famously elaborate tour. Um, she has like all these different um, actual film references. There's like a section where she's performing like um, uh, like the, the Clockwork Orange characters. Um, she is another section that's based on Metropolis. Um, and so like different she's like shuffled her uh, to then at that point, like, you know, what was her whole career? Uh, mm-hmm. into these different categories and is performing in that way. And that's really kind of cool and interesting um, to watch. Um, and it's also like Madonna at the peak of her, just like star charisma, I guess. Um, with great songs too. I like these, I like this period of Madonna a lot. Um, but then this is cut with this black and white, like cinema verite style of like following Madonna around in between the concerts. So either in like, as she's like getting makeup, um, you know, or, um, when she's in hotel rooms or, um, she goes to this like weird, like awkward, like a uh, PR thing with a bunch of other celebrities, like uh, Kevin Costner shows up and says that her show is neat. And she has like a really viscerally negative reaction to that word. <laughs> and just like spends like five minutes talking about that. At one point she's touring in Spain, uh, and is, a uh, apparently, uh, Pedro Amodovar, um, and, because of that knows who a very young Antonio Banderas is. And so is like out to meet Antonio Banderas and discovers that he's married and is very disappointed. Um, Fair. So like there's Madonna doing these kind of like back room, like hijinks. And then Madonna as like this, like giant, like, uh, you know, world conquering pop star Um, and a big portion of it actually. And this, the film was kind of like in some ways groundbreaking for this is that like at the time, um, and to a certain extent since, but definitely at the time it was the peak, you know, uh, Madonna had just done the Vogue song, which I think was in connection with Dick Tracy, um, and, uh, had been throughout the eighties, like, you know, adjacent to kind of like the subculture of queer music and club, like queer, queer, queer club scene and all that. Um, and so all of her dancers are gay men, uh, and she spends quite a lot of time with them in the verite sections of the film. And I was reading like reviews at the time, and this this is wild to me because this is not the kind of movie that it is. But reviews at the time compared the film to Paris is Burning, just in the sense of it like casually presenting like um, queer people, um, like in a documentary context, which was you know in 1991 something that mainstream film basically never did. Um, and so the movie is kind of like a landmark for that. Uh, it got like, it was the highest grossing documentary of all time, I guess, until 2002. At least that's what Wikipedia says. And I think 2002 must have been, it's like Fahrenheit 9-11 or something like that. That probably surpassed it. Um, mm-hmm. But another reason that this film is kind of like a landmark is that it kind of set the tone for these kind of celebrity documentaries where you have these kind of verite sections, a lot of... Uh, like retrospective reviews have kind of like positioned it as like a forerunner to like kind of the modern, like celebrity based reality television. So like keeping up with the Kardashians and all that sort of stuff where you have this kind of like ridiculous persona that may or may not be engaging in like pseudo scripted events. Like, I mean, it seems, it seems clear that certain parts are either rehearsed or reenacted. Um, but other parts cannot be, you know, because they're like at, you know, public events and things like that. Um, so there's this weird, tone throughout of not being sure like what is the performance and what is actually being captured of like genuine Madonna um, which is like a really nice dovetail with her career which is like you know largely been about like performance and controlling her image Uh, and especially at this time in the early 90s like really pushing 
boundaries in terms of sexuality and depiction of sexuality and stuff. Um, and uh, like in the films that she acted in, um, if you haven't listened to the most recent season of You Must Remember This, there's a fairly uh, lengthy episode about Madonna's uh, like uh, kind of like sexual button pushing at the time in like the early 90s. Um, and I think this film like kind of captures the weirdness of that because on the one hand, she's this like very corporate, very mainstream pop artist who is making songs that aren't like super challenging. I mean, even though they're good and like really fun, like it's not like she's some like kind of like, you know, out there artist. Um, you know, so there's like a certain manicuredness about like who Madonna is. And it's clear that she and the people around her have a very um, heightened sense of we have to control our environment to control like the messages and images we send out, like, you know, which has become increasingly the case for pop stars over the years, I think. Um, which is another way this is kind of interesting is it kind of captures Madonna uh, as, as she and a couple other um, celebrities are kind of crafting that thing, you know, where your public persona is part of your performance. Um, but you're also the whole time kind of questioning her authenticity, you know, and like, you know, the appeal of a documentary like this is to see behind the scenes. Um, but with someone who is as savvy as Madonna and with a camera that, you know, has the appearance of Verite, but, you know, who knows like the actual mechanics of like achieving this footage. Um, this, there's just this tension throughout of like, you know, is what we're seeing like the real Madonna and all that sort of stuff. And a little bit of that is, again, has become old hat since um, because it's become kind of a, a language unto itself with like documentary filmmaking and reality television and all that. But like Madonna herself is just a wildly entertaining and also a very annoying figure at this time, you know, she is just such an enormous personality, um, you know, where she just does and says things. I mean, like, like I've already mentioned, like wanting to sleep with Antonio Banderas, but being mad that he was married, like, and talking about it for a long time. Um, or um, there's this part where she's trying to get Warren Beatty to like perform for the camera and he's not. And she's just like, uh, you know, being really like she's clearly like you know playing this up and mugging for the camera and he's which is weird for warren Beatty, but like he's very reluctant to do it and he just kind of doesn't want to be on camera and so he's just like there looking uncomfortable while she is like doing this like you know outsized like you know uh, personality um i don't know she's like you know a presence to be reckoned with um but also the film itself is kind of interesting for the reasons I already said. So um, I had a good time with this. I mean, this film is still, I think, pretty highly regarded. Enough so that uh, the Selena Gomez documentary that came out a couple years ago, or actually uh, My Mind and Me, um, Selena Gomez specifically asked the same director of Truth or Dare, uh, whose name is Alex Keshishian. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely not pronouncing that right. But Selena Gomez specifically sought out this guy because she liked Madonna, Truth or Dare, or at least it had a reputation, you know, that she liked. Um, and so, I mean, it's good. If you like Madonna, it's definitely going to be good. If you don't like Madonna, it might be interesting otherwise, or, you know, a good, a good tool for confirming your um, dislike of her, because there's definitely things to dislike here. Um, but yeah, I don't know. How does, it, how does it kind of, you know, just kind of racing in my mind, like you can go as far back as something like A Hard Day's Night with the Beatles. Yeah. Um, but then like more recently stuff, you know, you mentioned the Selena Gomez doc, but like even Beyonce's Homecoming, um, you've had a number of, of 
different pop stars, whether it's Katy Perry or Taylor Swift or whomever who have like kind of created similar things. How does, how does this one kind of either, you know, does something like hard days night inform this, or does this, this one seem to be more informing what we're seeing now when it comes to pop stars and these types of films? I mean, it's not a narrative film like hard days night is, you know, it's so, um, I mean, I think it's like engaging in some of that same, you know, we have one of the most people, famous people on the planet in front of the camera. How do we deal yeah. with that? You know, it's like the same kind of like interesting question. Um, but I would say it's a, its approach is not like super similar. Um, like for one, it's not really trying to make Madonna seem likable. And it's unclear to me if Madonna herself is interested in being likable here. Like I said, like she's such a strong personality. Whereas the Beatles in Hard Day's Night are like, endlessly affable Mm -hmm. you know like they are like you know that that movie is there to capitalize on Beatlemania by uh magnifying it whereas this movie is meant to like madonna at this point in her career was just interested at some point in transgression and this movie is meant to like i think what she's trying to do in this movie um is to uh, kind of in some ways like poke at that transgression a little bit further and so by not kind of playing to the oh I'm gonna kind of like try to be sympathetic or be you know show like my soul that's a thing that puts it in like almost in in contrast with a lot of a lot of other like celebrity documentaries up to that point like it's not it's not like a fluff piece in the sense of you watch it and you're like I feel like I've just seen a PR of like, you know, piece. Um, but it's also not, not that because it's clear that there's a performance being done. Um, I don't know if that yeah. makes sense. No, it does. Cause I mean, I think, you know, like I really, I, I love Beyonce's homecoming, but it's not necessarily like, you know, it, it's, I don't feel like it's, it's just fully, you know, Beyonce showing you what, she wants you to see absolutely um, you know and i would say you know. that like the, the like non-concert footage in homecoming mm-hmm. is significantly more obviously manicured than like yeah. what's here like i mean and that's not necessarily to say anything negative about homecoming i like that but with homecoming it's it's almost like this kind of like montage like when it's not the yeah. um, thing whereas this is like I don't know. I mean, the black and white footage may be trying to evoke like don't look back or something like that, you know, where it's meant to seem like really off the cuff, mm-hmm. you know, whereas Beyonce's is meant to seem like, I mean, Beyonce's project as a, as a persona for the past decade, at least has been to seem otherworldly, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, like extraordinarily elevated. And I, I, I don't know. I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, there's there's a weird sense in which like Madonna is trying like t- really hard to be just seem like one of one of the guys or whatever, um, especially in the her relationships with her dancers, which she spends a lot of time with. Like, you know, she's her employer. She's like the boss, but she's like hanging around them. Like, there's this really kind of uncomfortable set sequence at the end of the film, which is where it gets its its uh title where they play truth or dare like the camera like you know is just sitting there and they're playing truth or dare and like she's the one who asks someone truth or dare first and the person says dare and she tells the guy like take off your pants um and 
or no, 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 it's like, you know, take out your penis or something. It's something like, you know, extraordinarily uh, forward. And that's kind of like the tone of a lot of their interactions. Um, and I think she's trying at certain points just to say, like, you know, I am just because I'm a pop star, I don't have to conform to like mainstream sensibilities, you know, just like my dancers are not mainstream. But on the other hand, like she is an extraordinarily powerful person who is employing these people, telling them to do that. And she's also not gay. You know, she's like engaging in kind of queer iconography without being so. And, you know, I know her relationship with the queer community is kind of fraught, you know, for that very reason. Um, But I think Beyonce would never allow herself to appear this way on camera. Um, also, the, the the ratio is off. Like the in Beyonce's um, Homecoming, you're you're seeing concert footage for like at least seventy five percent of the film, and then um, the rest is like her kind of home movie stuff. Um, whereas in this one, it's at least ha- over half of the movie is non concert footage. Um, mm-hmm. Is so, the concert footage any good? Do you mean the like, like? Does it work as a concert film? Uh, it it doesn't. It's not like an extraordinary concert film. It's about what you would expect. There's a lot of edits. There's a lot of um, you know, kind of camera movements that are kind of dramatic. Um, it the concert footage is not what stood out to me as being interesting about it. Although it's like impressive because it's like a very fun, energetic, elaborate concert. Um. But in terms of how it's made, like, you know, it's not stop making sense or yeah. something like that. I ask ever since the Karina did that episode in You Must Remember This, I've been curious to watch it because I've never seen it before. This but, is that's actually why I sought this out. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I would have been in college when it came out, and I wasn't like a diehard cinephile then, but I would have been reading like Rolling Stone and Entertainment Weekly, and I don't remember the discourse around the film having anything to do with the film it was always just about madonna which i guess yeah. makes sense i mean yeah like i don't i i can't even imagine what the actual concert footage is i don't think i've ever seen any of it I don't it's wild anybody talking about it it's just the concert itself is wild like everyone's dressed like priests uh and like they're all doing like intentionally sacrilegious stuff you know like sexualizing uh, religious iconography, which is like Madonna's whole thing with like a prayer. Apparently, um, this is in the documentary. They talk about it. Um, the Pope came out and said, don't go to Madonna's concerts because of this. Um, you know, so good for Madonna. Uh, <laughs> she, uh, they have also footage of police showing up in Toronto when she's performing there and threatening to arrest her for like lewd, um, like an obscene imagery. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, the film is like about Madonna, so it makes sense that there's like only discourse about Madonna at the yeah. time. Kind of takes all the air out of the room because she's so big. Yeah, because it would have been in the next year or so that she did the Sex Book and then the Erotica album, right? Yeah, this was all in the same couple of years yeah. uh, for sure. Because like, like a prayer is end of the '80s, maybe, and then she does all those films, like like Body of Evidence. When is that? It's like '93 or '92 yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, worth a watch if you're at all interested in Madonna or if you were intrigued by the You Must Remember This episode, which is how I got onto this. Um, I think it's got a Blu-ray out. I got a DVD from the library. Public library approved. (laughs) 
Um, cool. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk about some big time stars, but they're big time theater stars of the 1800s in France. And they talk a lot less than Madonna did. Talk a lot less than Madonna <laughs> in part two after this. <laughs> back with part two of episode 453 of cinematary in this part we'll be continuing young critics watch old movies with 1945's children of paradise directed by marshall carnet from a script by jacques prevert the film stars are, are it's arletti i think mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the main actors arletti uh jean-louis barot uh, pierre brasser Marcel Herrand, and pierre renair uh renoir excuse me pierre renoir it was uh Jean Renoir's older brother or father or something like that. Um, In this expansive drama, the lovely and uh, enigmatic Parisian actress Garance draws the attention of various men in her orbit, including the thoughtful mind Baptiste and the ambitious actor Frédéric. Uh, though Garrett and Baptiste have an undeniable connection, their fortunes shift considerably, pushing them apart as well as bringing them back together, even as they pursue other relationships and lead separate lives. The four men courting Garrett are all based on real French personalities of the 1820s and 1830s. Baptiste de Beru, uh, was a de Beru, uh, was a famous mime and Frédéric uh, Lamette. Uh, Lemaitre was an acclaimed actor on the Boulevard of Crime depicted in the film. Pierre uh, Lessonaire was an infamous French criminal, and the fictional character of Comte Edouard de Montreuil was inspired by Duc de Mornay. Um, the idea for making a movie based on these characters com- came from a chance meeting between Carnet and Jean- uh, Jean-Louis Barrault and Nice, during which Barrault uh, pitched the idea of making a movie based on the the actor and mime characters. Barrault told him about a famous 19th century mime, Jean-Baptiste Gaspard de, uh, de Beru, who had been, uh, given a facelift to the art of pantomime at the Théâtre des Funambules. Uh, one of the famous, well, most famous performance halls on the Boulevard du Temple in Paris. Uh, Dubaru uh, went down in history when he killed a drunk who bothered him. During his trial, all of Paris rushed to finally hear him speak. Baralt recalls uh, feeling the same excitement for Charlie Chaplin's first talkie a few years earlier. Then was the uh, was born the idea of a film which would confront spoken theater, spoken theater and mime, and where the famous actor of the time, Frédéric uh, Lemaitre, uh, would be, have a role to play. Uh, Carnet, who at the time was hesitant about which movie to direct next, proposed the idea to his friend Jacques Prévert. Jacques Prévert was initially reluctant to write a movie about a mime, Quote, Jacques hated pantomime, his brother once said, but Barolt assured Prevert that his he and his teacher, Etienne de Croix, um, <clears throat> excuse me, de Croix, who plays Baptiste's father in the film, would take responsibility for developing the mime sequences. 
the Germans were then occupying the whole of France, and Prevert is rumored to have said, quote, they will not let me do a movie about Lissonaire, but I put I can put Lissonaire in a film about Dubrow. Uh, the script incorporates quotations from uh, the the famed criminal's autobiography. Uh, Mar- uh, Margot Capellier, uh, Prevert's uh, assistant on writing, said, quote, the film was a miracle. We lacked everything. There was a set of motivated energies around these children of paradise in reaction also against the atmosphere of that time. Um, the film was made under extremely difficult conditions. External sets in Nice were badly damaged by natural causes, exacerbated and compounded by the theatrical constraints during the German occupation of France during World War II. The film was split into two parts because the the distributor Gaumont could only screen a three-hour film half as many times as usual. By making the film a pseudo-double feature, the distributor could charge 80 francs per admission, double the usual amount, therefore making up the shortfall. Um, Jean-Louis Barrault, who played Baptiste, was committed to the premiere production of a of the Satin Slipper, which was a hit, and almost offers offered his role to a music hall entertainer that was little known at the time, Jacques Tati, before a schedule was negotiated, which allowed him to fulfill both roles. Um, many of the 1800 extras were resistance agents using the film as daytime cover who under the liberation had to mingle with some collaborators or Vichy sympathizers who were imposed on the production by the authorities. Alexander Troner, uh, who designed the sets and Joseph Kozma, who composed the music were Jewish and had to work in secrecy during the production. Music was provided by the Orchestre de la Société de Concert du Conservatory during the, under the direction of renowned conductor Charles Munch, who personally contributed part of his income to the French Resistance. The set builders were short of supplies. The camera crew's film stock was rationed. The financing, originally a French-Italian production, collapsed a few weeks after production began in Nice due to the Allied conquest of Sicily in August 1943. Around this time, the Nazis forbade the producer from working on the film because of his remote Jewish ancestry, and the production had to be suspended for three months. The French company Pathé took over production, which uh, whose cost uh, was escalating wildly. The quarter-mile-long main set, the Boulevard du Tempel uh, was severely damaged by a storm and had to be rebuilt. By the time shooting resumed in Paris in early spring of 1944, the director of photography had been assigned to another production and that his replacement had to analyze all the reels in order to match the lighting of the non-sequential shot list. All the while, electricity in the Paris studios was intermittent. Uh, production was delayed again after the Allies landed in Normandy, perhaps in, uh, intentionally stalled so that it would, uh, would only be completed after the French liberation. When Paris was liberated in August 1944, the actor Robert Levigan, cast in the role of informer thief Jericho, was sentenced to death by the resistance for collaborating with the Nazis and had to flee along with author Celine to Sigmaringen. Um, he was replaced at the moment's notice by Pierre Renoir, older brother of French filmmaker Jean Renoir, and the son of the famous painter. And most of the scenes had to be redone. He uh, he was tried and convicted as a Nazi collaborator in 1946. One scene featuring him uh, survives in the middle of the second part where Jericho snitches to uh, Natalie. The New York Times in 1947 said the strong philosophical disposition of the French film director Marcel Carnet to scan through the medium of cinema uh the irony and pathos of life a disposition most memorably demonstrated in his great pre-war film key du uh, brooms has apparently not been altered by the tragic experience of the last few years as witness his most ambitious picture les enfants du paradis 
for in this long and fervid French uh, picture, which was more or less clandestinely made during the Nazi occupation under circumstances of the most exacting sort, uh, Monsieur uh, Carnet is platonically observing the melancholy masquerade of life, the riddle of truth and and illusion of uh, la comédie humaine. And if that sounds like a mouthful, you must rest emphatically assured that Carnet has bitten off a portion no less difficult to chew. And Variety in 1947 said this ambitious French feature uh, turns out to be a strange mixture of the beautiful, the esoteric, and the downright dull. Some startling flashes of inspired mime cry and fresh Gaelic humor are wedded to the not un-Hollywoodian concept of the femme fatale who willy-nilly in this instance leads men to their ruin in an uneven performance of writing and directing. So it didn't seem like the Americans were fans, but here we are today. (laughs) Um... Darren, I was going to start with you because this is the first time you had seen this movie in a long while. So I'm curious, you know, if what your impression was before and then rewatching it for the podcast, what was it like? Yeah, so um, I grew up. I'm no longer a young critic watching old movies. I'm an we old barely critic are watching old movies, but um, but I grew up in the suburbs where I had no access in the '80s and early '90s to um, very much world cinema at all. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure I watched Children of Paradise when the original Criterion DVD was released. Would have been, I don't know, early, very early 2000s. So 20 years ago or so was the last time and the first time I'd watched it. I remember coming away from it. My my lasting memory was that I wish um, I were fluent in French because I just the script um, is to me the standout of this film. I mean, I mentioned this already, but, um, you know, it's it's so tightly structured as what could be almost like a treatise on the various thoughts about love. You know, is it um, there? There's the poetic ideal of love in Baptiste. There's the um, Frederic is sort of the more carnal, mm-hmm. you know, pleasure seeker. The count is sort of removed from it all. Um, so on the paper, it's it would be so easy to almost plot the various points in the film, like the uh, almost like uh, philosophical or rhetorical points of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's at least for me, it's like easy to forgive it for being so s- tightly structured because each individual conversation is so strong. I feel like they're kind of exhausting um, the ideas of love in this film. Mm -hmm. And most of the performances for me work so well as embodiments of those um, types of love Mm -hmm. that I just sort of like sail right along, uh, right along with it. I'm never, you know, we can talk maybe about the end. I have some issues with the end of the film, but like um, generally speaking, especially for the first hour and a half hour and 45 minutes i'm just like fully fully locked in on those conversations yeah it's so like painted broadly you know in terms like you're describing like the different characters there they do have like their kind of archetypes to a degree Mm -hmm. but it's painted so broadly and you just kind of have like so much so much like just just uh 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 weightless um, weightless emotion and like you know and everything kind of flowing through it that it is you just kind of get carried through it um pretty easily um michael what was your impression of the movie had you seen it before i had not no this is the first time in 
I signed up for this podcast because I wanted to make myself watch it. Um, and uh, I liked it. I didn't have any idea what to expect of it because we were talking off mic. I didn't know what this movie was about. I just knew the it was like, oh, made with the French resistance or whatever. And in my head, I was like, well, this is going to be a World War II movie, which obviously <laughs> immediately opens on a bustling French street in like the 19th century. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> but um, no, I, I liked it. Um, and like I said, I had no idea like where it was going to go. Like from the moment I realized it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, and um I mean, a big part of this movie, I this is a, this is fairly surface level, but I'm simply not familiar outside of like the you know extraordinarily broad like Marcel Marceau like you know stereotypes or whatever. Like, I'm just not simply I'm not that uh, familiar with like uh, pantomime as an art form, you know. And a lot of this movie is devoted to the staging of it. Um, so a lot of this movie, I was just kind of interested in that, and uh, it's kind of amazing how troubled and difficult the production is because the just uh the, the parts that you would imagine would be the hardest to hardest parts of a movie to um you know craft during a, a wartime occupation aka like the sets and you know mise-en-scene and all that sort of stuff like it looks tremendous like there's every shot there's so much to look at um it's just like a really sumptuous looking movie um that i was really drawn into it on that level um so uh I what you're saying now, Darren, about like how each of the characters is a certain like archetype of love. Um, I hadn't quite burrowed into it on that schematic of a level yet. I think because a lot of the movie, I was just kind of uh, enraptured in. I mean, just the crowd shots. Like the crowd shots are just incredible in this movie. There's, uh, you know, I am amazed that it's like a set, like a quarter mile long set, like Zach. Um, because it, it looks so good. I, I don't know. I Again, that's it's pretty surface level, but that was my main takeaway, having not seen this before, was just being impressed by the, like, the kind of just depth of what was in, in the frame each time. This is, this is such a, like, uh, there's no depth to what I'm about to say, but I agree, Michael. Like, when the movie opened, I had this moment where I thought, like how long has it been since I saw a new movie that could afford to costume a couple hundred extras in a crowd scene? Mm-hmm. It's like, that's a kind of filmmaking that was just like standard issue for decades. And now it's like, there's no, there's no um, financing system that allows for that kind of massive um, crowd scene. That's, that's or if uh, there is, you CGI it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I was going to say. I, yeah, I just totally. watched the trailer for the Ridley Scott Napoleon movie with Joaquin Phoenix, and they have like this scene where he's like, you know, walking the streets of Paris. And like, you know, it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't feel like this movie, with, yeah. you know, when they're walking the streets of Paris and Napoleon. And this also, um, just just by coincidence, I also rewatched for the first time in 20 years, um, Rome Open City, mm, which yeah. I'm pretty sure the last time I watched it was on like on a bad VHS tape. So, you know, it was barely legible. And so to watch the new restoration or the relatively recent restoration on the Criterion, um, the fact that that film was being shot on the streets of Italy, of Rome, around the same time this was being shot in Nice, 
Yeah. And like just completely, two di- completely different visions of, of Europe in 1944 couldn't be more, more different. Yeah, it's, it's impossible to imagine that film, uh, Children in Paradise, being made during World War II. Yeah. I, the, the one thing that I, I was also thinking about just in terms going back to the point um, Michael, you're making about just the pantomime. Like they have extended sequences of some of the theatrical productions, but they have that one extended sequence for the most part of the one performance, uh, the pantomime performance with, I, I think Frederic and Baptiste are in the same um, show and it's not n- nearly as extensive and as, um, you know, and as uh, uh, like focused on as this movie, but um, I, I was thinking a lot like that that the uh, that Powell and Pressburger must have watched it in terms of like you know having the performance within the performance in the red shoes. Like it kind of just reminded me like where you just kind of get t- teleported into like if just the movie becomes this performance, um, you kind of get sucked in for it's not very long. It's like a 15, 20 minute stretch, but you're watching this like pantomime performance pretty, you know, uh, uh, fully acted out. So, um, uh, one of the, I'm curious, the, the, some of the, the 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 stuff that I read briefly about this movie called it like the most French movie, like the the, the French movie, the French, you know, this is the movie that like this is the most French movie of all time, and I kind of tend to agree with that. It, there's a lot of French ten- movie tendencies in this, um, but I, I I feel like it also it, it's such a um it's such a striking difference from. I guess I guess my 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 point is that it's interesting to think of this as like the kind of epitome of French cinema compared to uh, what we would generally like point to, like the French New Wave or something like that, like Truffaut and and Godard and people like that. Um, Truffaut, I, I read a quote, was a giant fan of this movie, and it's just kind of interesting to see this um, kind of uh, listed as like this this epitome of French cinema. When I don't think a lot of times, you know, we may we may look over this and, and look towards um, that French New Wave period of time. Yeah, I do think that like. So another thing that was set off Mike about this film was that in America, this was promoted at times as like the French version of Gone with the Wind or with the French response to Gone with the Wind or something. What, what was the line? Yeah, it was the, the response, which is better. And yeah, there you go. Um, Nazi, the French Nazi, saw Nazi, Gone uh, with the Wind and we're like, we got to show you guys. Nazi <laughs> resistance uh, <laughs> is the same thing as uh, uh, Southern uh, fables. But anyway, um, I think one thing that is actually an interesting parallel with Gone with the Wind is that like, you know, both America and France, like they're kind of like filmmaking mainstream gets pretty radically shuffled up, you know, in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, And both Gone with the Wind and this movie are in terms of scope and like, I guess, craft a kind of apex of a of a filmmaking style that um, is like of its era more so than, you know, like Gone with the Wind as, you know, racist as it is, it is like the Technicolor film, you know, like the Hollywood Technicolor film in terms of craft, you know, maybe, uh, you know, there's a few others, but like you're talking about like apex of um, like the old studio system, like that's that. And I can imagine, I'm not nearly as familiar with like pre French new wave. I mean, I've watched a few like Renoir and all that sort of stuff, but, um, 
I can imagine this movie having that kind of similarly totemic, like the the scale and precision of what was accomplished here um, within an older way of filmmaking, you know, um, is something that is kind of parallel to that in the only in the only way I would actually consider it parallel. <laughs> Zach, you said that you sort of agreed with the idea that this is the most French film. So what is that? Pretty French. What does that mean? I mean, I have my own thoughts, but there was uh, there was a lot of um, a lot of affairs. <laughs> There's a lot of people in love, unable to ex- or like overly expressing their love. Yeah. There was a lot of Paris and like pretty Paris sequences. There's lots of drinking. That's There's lots pretty, of, I mean, it's a horny movie, but it's also people want to talk about how they're horny and why yeah. they're horny. And I think it's that talking that makes it specifically <laughs> French. Like they yeah. want, it's the discourse. It's like the, the, um, the, the debate, um, that makes it stereotypically French like that in, in a beautiful never, way. He can never seal the deal. He, they talk too much. And like, if you just <laughs> shut the hell up for five seconds, he maybe could have sex with her <laughs> and like they could have felt on in love way, but that he like has to like talk and like literally at the one point he like talks for too long. And then Frederick shows up and screws the whole thing up. I'm like, yeah, man, like just yeah. come on. He has his chance. I mean, he's miming all day. He's got to, He's got to get those words out sometime. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also, I also was to be fair was struggling with Baptiste uh, just as a character. Mm-hmm. He he was fine, but like, uh, like, I don't know. Like twenty minutes in, I like it clicked in my mind that he reminded me of Conan O'Brien, and I just I couldn't had the unsee same thought. It. The exact I couldn't, same I couldn't, thought. Right? Yeah, I couldn't yeah. unsee it, and it was screwing me up. I'm just like, <laughs> like he just like the the actor Jean Louis Barrault, like just yeah. completely reminded me of Co- like a young Conan O'Brien. Well, Conan <laughs> no. deserves love too. I, yeah. I, I mentioned very casually that like I have some issues with the end of the movie. Yeah. And it's like, I, I get that Baptiste represents, he works on paper for me as like mm-hmm. this figure of, he can't, he can't consummate the relationship when he first meets her because that would destroy his ideal vision of, of, yeah. or whatever, this overly idealistic, romantic, perfect sense of, of, and so when he finally, and I, and I think the actor is okay in that role, mm-hmm. But at the very end, when they do sort of uh, finally get together, I just, I struggle to believe that this woman loves this man in any meaningful way. And it's because of the actor, not because of the, um, the, 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 the structure of the film or the, or the script. Mm-hmm. It's just like that guy. I just find totally unconvincing as the object of six yeah. years of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I get that. Um, yeah. I, don't, I, I definitely, I like the first part way more than the second part. Mm-hmm. The second part, as they're trying to kind of bring everything together. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly, I didn't like, I kind of felt like it gets rushed from the moment the police are there at the very end of the first uh, part with her to the second part where they're kind of catching everything up seven years later. I'm just like, that's just kind of moved very quickly. And like to the, to what we were talking about at the beginning, um, I was really honestly like this was a bit of like a vibe movie where it was just like, if it was just them kind of like fighting over different, like the different plays and the different, 
acting styles and like her kind of bouncing around to these four different dudes who all have very distinct different lives. Um, if that was the whole movie, I'd be completely fine with it. I really didn't need it to lead anywhere. I was completely good <laughs> with just the breeziness of just, you know, <laughs> them hanging. I like the blind, not blind, uh, uh guy with the with the bird <laughs> i like the little like uh the informer thief that that jean renoir's brother play like i like they you got all these little kooky characters i'm like yeah this is fun like give me give me like two and a half hours of this avril the henchman who who gets his hot chocolate after their yeah their first assault yeah like you're just like you got all these like kooky 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 people around like doing and they're and they're all like trying to fall in love and put on their plays and stuff i'm just like yeah whatever like that's all i need they, then it gets all complicated with all the other with all these emotions and other things i'm like you know i wish it was back in the good old days of just <laughs> <laughs> hanging around doing whatever in, in 19th century france i do think that like there is like some weird pacing that i don't know i i wonder how it would feel I mean, I guess it's kind of like inherently a two-part story regardless because you have the time jump. But like the very end of part one, which you just mentioned, Zach, where the the count comes in, he's like, hey, you should marry me. And she's like, I don't know about that. And he's like, here's my little card in case you change your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was imagining that coming down, like coming back much further in the movie. But it's like within five minutes, she's like, oh, never mind. I've been accused of a crime and now I yeah. have to be... Like it was like that that seemed like it was seeding something that was gonna be much longer gestating than it was. And I don't know, like the second part has some of that same stuff too, where um by the end of the film there's like um the assassination of the um uh not nah, man, the I'm count. forgetting his name. The count. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but I don't remember the count's name, but uh the assassination assassination of the count and like the ending of part two, like everything just like rushes through this. Um, I don't know. Like, like Darren, I, I, I don't quite not believe the love between um, Garans and uh, Baptiste, but I don't believe how it ends up where they come together at the end of the film. Cause it, it feels so quick. And yeah. the, the distance between when they come together at the end of the film or near the end of the film and then the actual end of the film, you know, with the assassination and then um, like her going through the crowd, like leaving and he can't catch up with her. Like it all happens way too fast like that. I don't know. I agree that I enjoyed the characters. I, the, there is something about the structure and pacing that bothered me, though. Um, feels mean to say that about a movie that was <laughs> employing the french resistance and you know <laughs> a miracle to piece together but uh maybe they should have saved some of this for the editing room yeah just the the whole the whole her getting accused of murder and arrested like all that kind of stuff it felt like almost like this like scattered dumas plot that like you thought she was like gonna like go away for like it needed almost a little bit more time to like kind of simmer because like it happens and like then you go you kind of you know there's a little overture you go in the part two and then um she kind of shows up pretty quickly afterwards you're like oh hey what's up i thought you were gone um i don't know it's you guys think the film is too schematic because i mean darren at the beginning you kind of pointed out how the different male you know love interests are all kind of representative of different things i mean 
is the film just too interested in that as a conceit rather than like, and is maybe disinterested in some of the connective tissue or is this something else? No, I think, I mean, I, I, it sounds like I like the film more than you guys do. I think, I think it's actually like a, maybe one of the greatest scripts ever. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I love, I love the script of this film. Um, yeah. And so I don't mind this, the schematic nature of it, the design of it. Um, I just wonder if like, for me, not all of it works quite by design. Like, I'm curious, what did you all think of Natalie at the end of the film? Baptiste's wife. Is her last scene, I'm trying to remember, is her last scene where she walks into the the room? Yeah, and she um, finds them together. Yeah. And she gets her I, speech. To be honest, like, Natalie, of the, the core cast, like, Natalie was the character I felt like I understood the least, and she was just there as a device. Um, you know, of course, Baptiste is married now and can't be with um, his true love, and so there's just the wife. Um I don't know. I, I kind of just expected that to happen. That that was another character who I didn't believe they were in love because like it, it well, like they're they not had, right. Yeah, well, it just seemed like they had like a kind of a relationship, and then she's like, "Yeah, he's with me." Like for the whole first part, she's like, "Yeah, but he's with me." Like he's mm-hmm. with me, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I think I felt the, kind of the same way. Where like. I get why she's there as this device to kind of be in the middle of like his true love and finding his true love. But, um, I asked because the, the guy who does the commentary track for the second half of, of, um, criterion release talks about how Natalie is so designed to be very unsympathetic. She's supposed to represent this like version of, um, domestic, you know, bondage or something like that you know like mm. baptiste is trapped with natalie and maybe I mean, it's just be, maybe it's just because i'm getting old or maybe i'm become cynical about love or something but i actually really like her speech as a counterbalance to the romantic idealist version yeah. of love that baptiste has because she she basically says look i i live with him every day yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean like that's hard in a relationship you know pining from a distance for six years that's easy you know, no that's like, true you guys you, <laughs> yeah. guys you guys spent like three hours together one day six years ago like i'm not i'm not i'm not buying into i've it. i've watched this dude's dirty underwear like screw <laughs> <Yes>. him <laughs> and, and also, I, but also like i've seen him with our kid yeah, yeah, yeah um he's he's actually pretty great you know like like they're yeah and and that's the other part that i struggle with the end is i'm just like at taste you're you're kind of an asshole. Like, what yeah. are you, what are you, what are you doing? You're, you're pining after this impossible vision for love as opposed to for Garance. I do have to add, I felt bad for her at the, in part one, because in part one, she is that kind of like idealist, right? Like, yeah. a little, and she, and, and you know, because of the way that the film sets it up, that she's doomed uh-huh. in that, because you know, that Baptiste doesn't really like, you know, isn't that interested in her and he's clearly pining um for uh Garance is it Garance right Garance um and so she's like tragic in the first part almost um but then in the second part again the, the connective tissue wasn't there like she just became like in the first part she's a device in the sense of um like a kind of foil to Baptiste you know and and 
with the the pining and the second part she seems to exist as like an obstacle or not an mm-hmm. obstacle, but like a, a dramatic uh, catalyst, you know, um, I get, I get what you're saying about the final speech. It felt, it felt kind of programmatic to me because that's the only thing she could have said at that moment, Yeah, you know, and I wouldn't have, she could have said that at the beginning of part two and I, it would have resonated the same with me. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to sound down on this movie. I actually really like this movie. I did too. We've kind of gotten on this negative gear, but uh, I thought this movie was good. Yeah. I, I think it's one, um, I think I'll I'll get more out of it on second viewing. Um, you know, it's just, it's kind of big. There's a lot, there's a lot of mechanisms going on. You're kind of feeling out what's, what's happening. Um, and I think if I watch it again with a little bit more, understanding and intention kind of going in i think i would get more out of it kind of a knowing how how the beats work and how things are operating i think it'd be one that one of those where you really relish in like how the machinations are working mm-hmm. so if i ever have a spare three hours again <laughs> have y'all seen any of the director's other films I feel like I have, but it would have been again twenty years ago. So I can't remember. Yeah, I don't recognize any of these titles except for Children of the Paradise. Children of Paradise, excuse me. I guess at this, at this, you know, in this period of time, he's he's definitely one of the most prominent French directors. Um, with you know, in the in the thirties and forties. Yeah, and I know he yeah. worked with Jacques Prévert on several of those films, so I'm kind of curious now to to watch them. Mm-hmm. So, um, any, any, any final thoughts, any closing thoughts on children of paradise? I mean, even though we were just negative on it, I also recommend it. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely one, I don't know. It feels like a, it feels like a, like a big, like, like big, big movie to kind of, if you really just want to dive into like a big movie, I think this is one mm-hmm. worth, well worth your time. What I, this is. This is going to sound like a negative question, which it's not. I'm just curious, like, because this movie is highly acclaimed. I'm looking on Wikipedia, and like, basically, like the the French version of AFI. It feels like in 1995 called this uh, the best film ever made. Um, and you know, it obviously has like this enormous reputation. Um, and I'm interested, like, what about this movie, like? like do you think has made it have that sort of legacy you know because you know when when i you know when i when i'm familiar with like french films it's either the new wave or like uh, rules of the game or you know those sort of like renoir like a uh, kind of um social satires right and this is neither of those things right this is a very like kind of traditional sort of film like you know what do you think has given it the the legacy that it has above like you know, what's maybe internationally the more kind of acclaimed French cinema. Mm-hmm. You're you haven't watched any Tati, correct? We've talked about. Oh no, that. I watched all of them. I went through right. when we did our series. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. When I think of French, I think of the, the French New Wave, Tati, Jacques Demay, which kind of you know works off of French New Wave. You know, Agnes Varda, um, Chantal Ackerman. I mean, I guess it's kind of similar to in America, like when people ask what's the greatest film of all time, people say like Casablanca or whatever, which is 
you know, a thoroughly like out of time, you know, or, or like classic Hollywood films, you know, and those are amazing films. I would Maybe say they probably say The Godfather. I'm not agreeing yeah. with it. I'm just saying that's what I'm No, no, no. I agree. I'm trying to think of like the, the Citizen parallel. Kane. Or Citizen Kane. I feel like that one's fallen out. Like I feel like Casablanca and Citizen Kane have fallen out as like the, the obvious choices. Now it's it's like The Godfather. The Hitchcock like Psycho or uh, Rear Window. or Not even that. We're so, we, yeah. we have such bad opinions in America. <laughs> what i'm saying is like domestic yeah. like oh, domestic yeah, opinions of their of their greatest films yeah. like it's interesting that like that that says something interesting about like you know the films themselves that they become known as like the fact that citizen kane is was for such a long time kind of consensus greatest american film um like that says something interesting about like what we consider our national cinema yeah um and i I was just gonna say, going kind of going back to maybe like the question of like why why do you like I, I it does it does have this like really strong string of nationalism to it you know like you like there is like this pride in the work of of these performers you know you have Paris like on full display like it was used as this kind of um you know liberation French nationalistic like like hurrah we like we've you know the the nazis are out they they're defeated like this movie's coming out kind of thing um and so i think a lot like i think you have to kind of consider that you know going back to the notes like consider that cultural context around it as well as like they're just getting out of the occupation like you have this film that's been going on you know it was supposed to come out but was going on and people knew about it and were like anticipating it coming out you know we're really holding out hope to like see it once the the occupation was done and so it comes out and it's kind of almost like this this like this is the kind of this is you know we're out of it type like this this is the thing to kind of celebrate we're out of the occupation the nazi occupation and like france is france again type thing so maybe that plays into it as well mm-hmm. all right well that will wrap up this episode of cinematary if you would like to learn more uh head to facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary or twitter and instagram at handle at cinematary if you would like to support the show support us at patreon.com slash cinematary uh big thanks to our patrons cam chad newsome candace ron hayes Teresa marsathi and tyler chandler we appreciate the support um if you'd like to support us we're We'll probably do a Patreon pick thing soon, you know. So throw a dollar our way. You just have to pay the one dollar, and you get to make us watch something, you know. What Party. better way to, you know? <laughs> and it may become our most listened to episode of all time. Yeah, you know, Andrew's students have done it. Everybody's done it. Um, <laughs> on the next episode for for young critics, we're going to be diving into a movie I'm excited to watch because I have not seen it since I had to watch it in school during film studies classes. Uh, but we're finally uh, doing a Ingmar Bergman film on Cinematary, which, oh, yeah. uh, which seems way overdue at 450. Which episodes. one is it? Which one is it that we ended up doing? We're doing uh, Wild Strawberries from 1957. Oh, nice. So, oh, no, I take that back. We did Seventh Seal. I take that back. We've done Seventh Seal. Um, yeah, that was also a Young Critics movie, wasn't it? Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, Wild Strawberries. So, you know, it's still not not that much Bergman for a podcast that's had 454 episodes we have an episode of you know shrek Romeo 3 and Juliet. <laughs> it's, it's shrek 3 but we don't have much bergman uh, <laughs> but until then thank you all for listening we'll see you next episode